This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dave at thenewyorkbudget.com. And when I'm not breakdancing on the subway for money, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement. It's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and Gertrude told me today is National Wave All Your Fingers at Your Neighbor Day. Heck, I didn't even know Joe knew how to use all his fingers when he waves. I mean, you know, usually it's just the one. Today, we'll be waving our mouths at a topic, talking about how one family failed at early retirement. Here to tackle this problem, we welcome certified financial planner from Releve Financial Group, Don Dalby. And from Afford Anything, it's Paula Pant. And from LenPenzo.com, we welcome artist Damian Hurst. Nah, nah, he's busy selling medicine cabinets for $11 million. Ah, so it's just Len Penzo. Also, on our Friday FinTech segment, here's one by special request. Speaking of artwork, we'll talk about investing in art. How do you make money doing that? With founder of Masterworks, Scott Lynn. And, of course, we'll still magnify someone's money, and I'll share one of my famous trivia questions. And now, the guy that only paints by numbers... It's Joe Salciha. I'm so great staying inside the lines. Actually, I don't know that anybody says that. Hey, everybody. I am Joe Salciha. I average Joe money on Twitter. And welcome to Friday. Welcome to the weekend. We've got, we got a fun show today. This is a super interesting topic. How many people retire and then say, nope, didn't think I could do it. One person who uh, will probably never retire from the Afford Anything podcast, it's our friend Paula Pant on my dead shortwave. 
Absolutely. I'm here. And my goal is to, if my health holds out, to never, ever, ever retire. I want to be 250 years old and still working because I like what I do. But, you know, the operative difference is working because you have to versus working because you want to. That's funny. We had a, uh, a meetup in New York and people were asking, when are we going to stop the podcast? I'm like, when they roll me out. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about it. The people that we think of as traditionally, quote unquote, rich, like Warren Buffett or Mark Cuban, Kylie Jenner, they're not working because they're worried about putting groceries in the fridge. Quote unquote, rich people, they're all financially independent, but we don't think of them as retired. So why would you presuppose that that R.E. comes after F.I.? You don't think that Kim Kardashian's living paycheck to paycheck? Oh, toast. <laughs> <laughs> and deep under Los Angeles, back for another week, it's Mr. Lampenzo. How are you, dude? I'm doing just peachy keen. You know, there are some rich people who aren't financially independent. There are plenty of stars who make millions of dollars and they work because they have to. So, I mean, yeah. I, remember Ed McMahon, the late Ed McMahon? The guy yes. was, was perpetual perpetually in debt. And I think he declared bankruptcy multiple times. I think about people like Tori Spelling, you know, famously having trouble making ends meet on lots and lots of money. Yes. We got somebody that helps people solve that problem every day. We're we're so happy she's here with us from Arizona. It's our friend Don Dalby. How are you? I am really nice and warm. It's about 70 degrees in Arizona. Um, can't complain for end of January. You are just pouring salt in my wound, aren't you, sister? Absolutely. <laughs> I lived in Minnesota for 47 years. So I've been there, done that. So this is funny. You're a financial planner and you and I have very parallel careers. We were at the same big company for a long time. A long, long time. Absolutely. And that's fun. So th- tell everybody about your practice now, because it's so cool what you do. Yeah, so I have my own firm. It's called Releve, which you pronounced it right. Releve means to grow. We want assets to grow. We want people to grow. We want portfolios to grow. It's called Releve Financial Group. There's a group of eight of us, and the practice, the main office is in Minnesota. And so I travel back to Minnesota once a month to see the clients, and we focus on comprehensive wealth management. And I think one of the biggest differentiations that we have within our firm is that We include tax planning as part of our advice because we all know taxes are probably our biggest expense in in life. And so taxes are huge. And then also we focus on the behavioral side of financial planning because, Joe, we all know your behavior needs some help. (laughs) You know, it's all about focusing on the right behavior, making the right decisions around money. Don's been here five minutes. And already (laughs) it starts. She's going to fit right in. That is so funny. And it's so true. And by the way, you talk about taxes. It's wild that it's that time of year. I got to say a big thanks to Free Tax USA for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Not tax planning, but tax preparation, which Don will tell you are two totally different things. For 10% off, go to freetaxusa.com forward slash SB and use code SB. We got a great show. We got Don here. We got Paula here. We got Len we're going to talk about somebody that tried to retire and said, couldn't do it. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Our headline today comes to us from CNBC's Make It blog. It's written by our friend Sam Dogan, who is uh, the financial samurai, has a fantastic blog there. Sam loves to stir the pot, but this time... 
he's got a headline about himself. And instead of me doing the honors, we thought a guy that had a great podcast back in the day, and now he's the editor for a ton of great podcasts, doing the honors reading this to us today, our good friend Steve Stewart. 42-year-old millionaire. I tried to retire early at 34, but failed. Here's what went wrong. In 2012, I decided to quit my six-figure job in investment banking and retire at 34. I had amassed a net worth of about $3 million that generated roughly $80,000 in investment income per year. For seven years, I lived a charmed life in early retirement with my wife, who also retired from her finance job three years after I did. Together, we earned roughly $250,000 in passive income streams per year, mostly from dividend-paying stocks, interest from savings, municipal bonds, and rental income. We traveled to more than 20 countries. I spent time doing things I enjoyed, like coaching a high school tennis team and writing on Financial Samurai, the personal finance website I started in 2009. Fast forward to the end of 2019, and my wife and I are no longer comfortable living in an early retirement lifestyle, especially in a big, expensive city like San Francisco. According to a report from the California Association of Realtors, you now need a minimum household income of $309,400 to afford a median-priced home in San Francisco, which is around $1.6 million. So even with our annual passive income of $250,000, we're still short nearly $60,000 per year. In order to own our existing home without a mortgage, we could try to sell our other investments, but that would create a much higher net worth allocation towards real estate than desired. Our goal is to keep real estate expenses to no more than 35% of our income. Furthermore, selling our investments would trigger a tax liability on capital gains. Retiring from early retirement. When I left my job and even got a nice severance package that paid out all of my deferred stock and cash compensation, I thought I could retire and be set for life. I was wrong, and I'm not afraid to admit it. If my wife and I don't take action soon, we'll no longer be able to live comfortably off our passive income streams in San Francisco. Here are the main reasons I now need to retire from early retirement. Number one, we had a child. My wife and I never planned on becoming parents, but that changed in 2017 when we were blessed with a baby boy. Retiring without children is like a walk in the park compared with retiring with children. In addition to costs for diapers, clothes, toys, baby food, and occasional babysitting, our biggest concern is paying for our son's education, especially now that he's in preschool. In San Francisco, the public school system starting in kindergarten is based on a lottery system. So even if you pay property taxes, your child is not guaranteed a spot in your neighborhood schools. Most parents are forced to pay big bucks to send their kids to private school but even paying $30,000 or more doesn't guarantee admission to top-rated private schools. Don't get me wrong. Fatherhood has been the most rewarding experience in my life. And we're going to do whatever it takes to support our son's needs and give him access to as many opportunities as possible. Number two, I underestimated how low interest rates would go. I'm a believer of low interest rates for life but I didn't think the 10-year bond yield would ever drop below 1.5% in 2019. I thought we'd stay around 2.5%. Now, instead of only needing $2 million in additional capital to generate $50,000 at 2.5%, I need $2.5 million in capital to generate the same $50,000 in 
in passive income at 2%. At 1.5%, the required capital to generate $50,000 in passive income is over $3.3 million. Seeing such a large shift in the goalpost when you don't want to take more investment risk is disconcerting. The only way I benefit from the recent interest rate decline was by refinancing my mortgage down to 2.6%. My cash flow is now about $13,000 greater per year. While the increase helps, it still doesn't offset the expected investment income decline. Number three, rising health insurance premiums. In 2019, the monthly premium on our health insurance was $1,820. But recently, I received notice that our premium will rise to $1,940. That's $23,280 per year in annual health insurance premiums, excluding any co-pays or co-insurance. This will be an even bigger problem if we decide to have more children later on because the 2020 amount will go up another $440 to $2,560 per month. I finally reached a point where paying so much in health insurance premiums feels like highway robbery, especially since we're a healthy family with no pre-existing conditions. While I understand that it's our duty to help subsidize others who are less healthy, the cost has become untenable. Number four. The bliss of early retirement didn't last as long as I thought it would. Retiring early improved my quality of life in ways I would never have imagined. I was able to fully commit to fatherhood, my relationship with my parents strengthened, my aging slowed, and I even became more self-sufficient. After a few years, however, the bliss of taking a permanent vacation went away. I started getting the itch to do something more productive than playing tennis and sleeping in. Also, when you have to start paying $2,000 per month for preschool, not using your six to eight hours of free time finding ways to cover that cost just doesn't feel right. How I plan to retire again by 2022. In order to get to $309,400 a year and retire again by 2020, I decided to spend some time focusing on entrepreneurship. For too long, I've treated financial samurai like a hobby. The website has grown to amass more than a million readers per month. My immediate goal over the next six months is to grow traffic and boost advertisement revenue by partnering with relevant financial institutions and creating more products and services like my severance negotiation book. I also plan to apply for jobs at various tech, media, and financial firms. With the income from a full-time job, subsidized health care, and other benefits, I can accelerate my goal of accumulating extra capital to generate enough investment income. Finally, I will continue investing in real estate in America's heartland, where valuations are cheaper, cap rates are higher, and job growth is stronger. If all else fails, we will relocate to Honolulu in 2022 when our boy is eligible for kindergarten. The median price for a single-family home in Honolulu is $835,000, or 40% lower than in San Francisco. Meanwhile, the price of a private school education there, around $25,000, is also 30 to 45% less. Always plan for an unknown future. For those who want to retire early, my advice is to always plan several years ahead. Set a date for your exit plan and do whatever it takes to meet your goal. My biggest mistake was failing to consider how my lifestyle and needs would change and what to do when those changes take place. Downturns do happen. You can't plan for every variable. But the more prepared you are, the greater your chances for achieving financial freedom. Now, if you'll excuse me, it's time to turn in my early retirement membership card and get back to the salt mines. Paula, when you hear Steve read... 
Isn't it amazing that he doesn't have a podcast anymore? Like it makes me miss his old show. We interviewed him on one of the early episodes of Afford Anything, and it's one of those, you know, those historic moments of <laughs> let's hear Steve's voice, not yeah. just, uh, you know, somebody whom we always these days whom we often reference, but we don't get to hear his voice very often anymore. That's the amazing Steve Stewart. This is very interesting to me, Don, and we'll start with you as our special guest today. It's funny, Sam tried to retire early. But then a lot of things changed in his life. It seems like the one thing is a guy who's pretty savvy with money. It seems like he would have thought more that retiring that young, things would change. Is, do you find that's a problem for a lot of people that retire early? I don't know if it's a problem. I think it's reality, right? Life changes. I mean, I look at my life. I don't, what I want today is not what I wanted five years ago. And working in the financial industry and doing comprehensive planning for the last, what, 20 years, it's about building plans around uncertainty, because if there's one thing that's certain in life, besides taxes and death, of course, is that our lives are uncertain, right? So you have to build your wealth around, you know, having things happen in life that are uncertain. And I thought he mentioned that he fails to plan that for his life, the, the uncertainty part. But honestly, I mean, you got to plan and when I plan, we, we make sure we pull levers. We have a financial plan that you're able to pull levers because stuff happens. I was going to say another S word, but stuff happens. Life changes. People have kids that, you know, <laughs> just like, you know, he did. And it's just like, it's, it's part of life. Change is good. And I think how he reacted to the change was great. Paula, you and I see this a lot, I think, in the early retirement community. People say, I'm going to retire, you know, I have $250,000 my expenses are low, so I'm going to retire now. And then things change. And I feel like sometimes people don't take that into account enough when they when they say they're going to retire at 30. Yeah, you know, I've, I've written articles about this on my blog in which I very much take umbrage to the assumption that you have a quote-unquote FI number because a lot of people calculate their FI number based on their current expenses. But, you know, as we've all just talked about, your current expenses are a snapshot, a single data point in like a moment in time in the graph of your life. And so picking one single data point on this big 100-year graph doesn't really make any sense. But I'm reminded of the this, my one of my favorite quotes comes from J.L. Collins, who says, flexibility is the only true security. And so if you want to stay retired in the conventional sense of the word, you must be flexible. And so in some in, in a case like Sam's, you know, Sam talks about how the median price of a home in his area is 1.6 million. Well, that means 50% of the homes cost less than that, right? So can he live in a home that is in the bottom quartile of the homes in his area? That would be a home for 850,000 or less. He could certainly choose to do that if he wanted to. He's choosing to live at the median rather than in the bottom quartile. That's and, what I was going to say. A question it really is, is does he want to? I mean, right. he has that choice, but does he want to do that? Exactly. And and that's the thing is you can afford anything, but not everything. Right. So I've never heard that before. He... <laughs> exactly. Someone brilliant said that. <laughs> I'll have to look up who it was. Who is that? Right. You know, and so it's not that he can't retire early. It's that he's choosing not to. He's what? choosing yeah. uh, $30,000 a year private school, which ask anybody who doesn't have the means for that. That is not a necessity in life. That is a choice. I'm going to get back to that in a second, because I think that's another big nugget here. But while we talk about what sank him, 
Len, I want to ask you this because with your retirement coming up in April, rising health insurance premiums really killed him. And I imagine for a lot of people with full-time work, and this had to be big in your planning, thinking about the cost of health care must have factored into your retirement date decision. Yes, that is true. And I have a big advantage in that my employer, you know, my part of my pension is I do get health care. That's huge. It's heavily subsidized. Now, I do pay a little bit. I will be paying a little bit for it, but it is heavily subsidized. And if I had to pay what Sam is paying, because I think Sam mentioned it, I think he's paying, I think he's going up to $24,000 a year. Of course, that's for three, a family of three. I'm going to be, it'll be just me and the honeybee when when I retire here. And I think going in, I'll be paying uh, $700 a month. So much less than what Sam's paying right now. So, but, but yes, that's a huge factor. And I know people at my work, I'm one of the older guys. I'm fortunate enough to get that subsidized healthcare, ben, Benny, uh, for, as a, a retirement perk. The newer engineers don't have that benefit. So therefore, I'm sure they will be working a little bit longer. Yeah, we did, we, did, we did a story on our Money with Friends show from Kiplinger about how healthcare has become over 30% of the average retiree's budget. And that's up from, I think, 21 or 22% just over the past decade. Like uh, healthcare really taking uh, a bigger and bigger chunk. I want to move to the end of the piece because, uh, Don, you and Paula both talked about flexibility and the importance of having different levers to plan. I like that analogy. But I know another big piece has to be when you're doing comprehensive planning, this idea of planning what you're going to do after. Like, it's not about leaving the job. One piece that really bothered me about this was Sam getting the itch and going, I, I, it, I mean, it didn't feel to you like he was kind of aimless, like he just needed something to, to keep moving. Well, he's so young, right? He has so much more to offer himself in the world. I just like boredom can sit in after a while. I mean, what did he say? He couldn't justify spending what $30,000 a year on private kindergarten and then sitting there for eight hours doing nothing. I just, I think people, you know, I find in my practice all the time, people retire not even at 35 or 45, they retire at 55 and find themselves wanting to do something else because they're so much more to give. And I think we're seeing a big change nowadays with the younger generation wanting to take little, you know, modern retirement is taking those little gaps before, you know, before you're 65. I mean, I have clients that old style retirement, you know, they save their entire life. They retire at 65. And I mean, today I had a call with a client. I'm like, so you're telling me you retired with a $3 million portfolio. And now what we're paying for is hearing aids, new teeth, back surgery, heart surgery, you know, and it's like, why do you wait to retire until you're old? And I think, you know, I kind of took a different take with this article and I thought, you know, kudos for him for retiring earlier. And now he's, you know, at a crossroads with having to make some decisions of where he's going to live and how he's going to support the second half of his life. But dealing with people that have always taken the traditional route for retirement I take a different approach and I say good for him. But do people get surprised when they come to your office or they're meeting with you online or whatever, and you spend so much time on kind of visualizing what you're going to do next? Because it seems like people don't focus enough on that. What am I going to do after this? Right. People don't focus enough or, you know, when people get ready to retire, like Sam in this case, he was done. He wanted to be done out of banking. 
just be done. But he was exhausted. He was emotionally exhausted at that point. He didn't realize he had no plan for children. He didn't know what the next, you know, after he played tennis and relaxed and slept in, like, what does your life look like when you're in a different emotional state? And I think that's the biggest thing here is that people don't plan for the flexibility and the uncertainness of what's going to happen long-term for them. And that's where you, you need to invest your money in places that give you that flexibility because life happens and life changes. Paula, I know you like this idea of mini vacations that Don's talking about if people have a job where they can do that or have a career type that they can do that. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of what I refer to as retire early and often, which is the concept of taking little mini retirements throughout your life. Mm-hmm. So rather than then this binary, like zero one, I'm a, I'm a block of working for decades and then I'm a block of not for decades. I love the concept of taking little sabbaticals throughout your life where you can take, depending on your work situation, depending on your career, maybe that's as short as one month. Maybe it's as long as one year. But, you know, you can take somewhere between a month to a year off and explore new interests or or just if it's a month, heck, you could spend a month sleeping in and watching Netflix. And then at the end of the month, you've at least been able to to indulge that side of you for for a month. Um, and then you can go back to work after that. If it's a year, then maybe you want to travel or maybe you want to learn a musical instrument or a foreign language or start a local nonprofit in your community. There are a lot of things that you can do that uh, help you become a more well-rounded person with a mini retirement model. Yeah, instead of a mini retirement, my dad retired for good at, uh, I think, 54 from General Motors. And it was amazing that all the people that he worked with were still working when he retired. My dad immediately started hanging out with people 20 years older than him. And he even looks back and we had to have like an intervention and said, Dad, you can't hang out with old guys so much. Not that they weren't nice guys. My dad all of a sudden started having the same aches and pains and and health problems like almost immediately that these guys 20 years older than him had. I'm, and I'm wondering, Len, since you've got this right right in front of you, big guy, have you spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what's next more than just I'm going to travel, play golf or the platitudes a lot of people say when they're getting ready to tell their career to take a hike? Yeah, I did. Because one of the things I read about, I read about this as being a problem with retirees is they don't think about what they're going to do when they retire. And I don't have that problem. One, I'm a homebody, but I have projects. Okay. So I've got my blog that I want to work on as a business, expand it. And I mean, I'm going to be putting 40 hours a week easily into that once I retire. And then I, you know, I've talked about my, my hobbies. I've, you know, I'm a big model train guy. I mean, eventually I want to get building a, a massive model train empire going in my house. So, you know, that's going to keep me busy too. I mean, that's a slow, that's not something you do in a, a week or, I mean, that's a two, three, five, ten 10 year project. So, I mean, uh, between those two things and then occasional travel and what have you, yeah, that's, I've got plenty to do. I just don't understand how, I mean, people who retire at 34, that's great. But, you know, I don't think they realize how long life is life as speaking as a 55 year old guy about to turn 56, life is long. It is long. And I'm, I look back 20 years when I was 35, man, my kids have grown up and I've got look forward 20 years. I got another 20 years to get to 75, man, you have a long life. So you better know what you're going to do if you give up your work. Yeah. Like a whole nother career, but uh, uh, coming up Len. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you, you really do. I mean, life is just too long. And I think Sam found that out 
kind of the hard way. He got bored. <laughs> so, and at 34, I just cannot imagine giving things up at 34. I just can't. And that increases your risk too, right? We were talking about risk and, and life happens. When you're 34 and you retire, you have 50 years of life happens ahead of you. Whereas if you retire at 55, you only have 20 years or 30 years or 40 years of, you have a lot less life happens to worry about. Yeah, so. yeah uh, You're nodding, Don. Well, yeah, I'm just listening. I mean, it, it's a different perspective. Sam retired at 34. The coolest thing for me was that he got to spend some really quality time with his young son, yeah. right? And be present. And I think our kids today, I mean, I do a ton of research on this, but our kids are lacking parents being present and being there for them. And, and you can't ever get that time back. And so I think it's pretty cool that he did that. And I always look at, you know, we talked earlier about behavior. So Sam, by the time he was 34, he had $3 million in a normal banking job, right? And you don't find that that often in America. And so he actually made some really good choices early on in his career. And I feel like he took, how long did he take off again? I don't remember. You know, I remember reading an article of his, he started doing some work after a couple of years of retiring. Yeah. After. Yeah. Doing like just part-time work and really yeah. getting involved in his blog, but he's been, uh, let's just say it was a couple years, two to five years, right? Yeah, the yeah. timing really doesn't matter. But the point is, is that his behavior before that he made good choices he had some free downtime and I feel like he's going to start over again and he's going to, that, that behavior is going to be modeled again and he's going to make some really good choices. And instead of him earning or gaining another $3 million, he'll probably find another a way to, to get his portfolio up to $6 million and live a freaking amazing life. But is this also a case of knowing yourself a little bit? Because Len, Len, you've met Sam, you know, Sam, right? Yes. Yeah. And so I've met Sam personally too. I think Sam retiring that early, Len, was a big mistake. Just knowing Sam for a total of maybe 48 hours personally, I'll tell you, there's no way that this article was inevitable, right? <laughs> that there was no way in hell Sam was going to stay retired with the type of go, go, go personality that I met in Denver. Like it just, I felt like uh, reading this, I'm like, maybe Len, Sam didn't do enough introspection before he he thought, well, like, what's my what's my personality like? Well, I agree. That's what I, that's what I'm saying. You got to really. I think anybody before they retire, they've got to sit down and they've got to lay out a plan. What what are you going to do to fill all of this time you have ahead of you? You know, never mind the life happens. What your your own personal time? What are you going to do? How are you going to fill that time? Because they, like, I mean, even Sam's admitted it. You can only play so much tennis and golf and you know, hanging out with whoever. And I think the other thing is Sam. It seems like he's missed the camaraderie from his yeah. fellow employees at work. Yeah. I really sensed some – it was really, really kind of sad, loneliness, some severe loneliness in that article. <laughs> I t so. Well, it is funny. I identified with that because I remember my dad expressing that after he left. Like He was so excited about retirement, and then later on, man, you could just see that he, he missed it so much. I want to go to something that Len talked about earlier, Don, that's not in the piece, which is longevity planning. So being in a unique perspective where I used to do what you do, and now I've switched over to the financial media side, I get to see the consumer media around finance, and then I see the advisory media around finance. And it seems like on your side of the table, you guys are way, 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 way more worried about longevity than we see in the consumer side of the equation. 
Is that a worry for you as an advisor, people's money running out way, way, way too soon? And how do you kind of defend against that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's so funny. Whenever we do planning and we ask people, you know, how long you want your financial plan to last and I'll say 100 or 95 and they look at me like, "Are you, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I'm really going to live that long. And, um, and most people are like, I don't want to live that long. But I do think it is a concern. But at the same token, too, I, I always make the joke. I said, yeah, you might be here at 90. You might be here at 95. You might be plugged into a wall. Can't move. Can't breathe, you know, because the technology is keeping us all alive a lot longer than we want to be here. So you might be plugged into a wall as a robot yourself and not wanting to be here. But here's the thing. Some advisors, I think, don't plan this way. But come on, when you're 80 or you're 82 or 85, are you really going to be living the same lifestyle you are at 55? You know, you're not. Again, it's about planning for change in the the mental state change, the physical change that's going on with you. you you're not going to have the same lifestyle. And so I think when we plan, a lot of times planners want to make sure that they have the same lifestyle. So they're 95 and that's not reality. Well, I we want to sit at home, drink beer, you, right? <laughs> want to drink Coors Light, have our dog um, and just like chill out. And that doesn't cost very much, especially if you're shopping at Costco. You underestimate, Don, Len's ability to sit around and eating Tostino's pizza rolls <laughs> at 85 years old. Right. That's well, it. If that's all he's eating, he'll he'll be out of here at seventy five. Right. So it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to bring up one thing. My cousin Kevin, the CPA, he's he told me about five six years ago. He goes, you know, people talk about your seventies and your eighties being your golden years, and that's when people kind of say, oh yeah, I'm going to be spending all my money. And I'm just echoing Don's point basically. But your golden, he said, your golden years in terms of spending are actually your fifties and your sixties. So get everything done big. This is what he says, and I agree with them. Get everything big done that you want to do before you turn 70. And then, you know, you should be able to cruise through the rest of the way. Sam, if he just moved to middle America or Reno, Nevada, or even Phoenix, Arizona, he has no issues at all. It's not money. His issue is he needs to do something. If you pull back the layers on what his deal is, it's not about money. It's about he doesn't come across that way in the he talks about, oh my God, I'm I've got free cash flow of 250 grand, but I need 300 grand. I mean, and he's sending his kid 20, he's paying 25,000 a year for kindergarten, preschool. I, I think he says that stuff. I think he says that, but knowing Sam because it's salacious. Yes, and it I know, sells. I know, I know. But you know what? I'm gonna hold him to his word on that. <laughs> and, and and here's the other thing. He's saying to escape the issue in San Francisco, he'll just move to Hawaii. Which I know it's still just as high priced. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is, is that people don't plan for, yeah. So he, let's say he moves to Hawaii. Well, have you planned for all the trips you're going to be making back to the state when your child lives here in the state and doesn't want to live in Hawaii? You know, and all those extra expenses for travel, people underestimate that stuff and that stuff's expensive. And nine, nine, ten dollars a gallon milk and stuff in, in Hawaii. It's crazy. That's why he, he's he's got to give up milk. That's the deal. <laughs> that solves this. Have you ever done that with somebody, Don? Just said, you know, if you, if you give up milk, your money lasts to one hundred and ten. Yeah, that's exactly how we plan. <laughs> exactly. We do. Yeah, because dairy's horrible for your skin, and if you're a female, you know. <laughs> I just went to get Botox and she's like, did you have dairy? I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm on the keto diet. She's like, you can't have dairy. I'm like, what? You're gone. 
Yes. That happened to me too. We've yeah. got the same, it looks like it. got the same. Your Botox is actually working pretty well for you. It same, same stuff going on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, let's talk about our takeaways here, guys. Uh, Len, what's your big takeaway from this piece? Have a good plan before you retire, boy. Make sure you know what you're going to do with the rest of your life because it's long. Yeah. Paula? That you can afford anything but not everything. So think carefully about the difference between can't versus choose. Uh, and don't claim that you can't do something when, in fact, you have simply chosen that you have different spending priorities. Anytime you can slap an afford anything bumper sticker on my show, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. Don is our. That's what I'm here for, Joe. <laughs> yes. Don is our special guest. You've got the last word. Ooh, um, I would just say flexibility, right? You can have all the money in the world, but if it's tied up and you don't have access to it, you know, it changes your life and you're not able to choose like Paula says. So build a plan where you can pull levers and be flexible. Paula, I... I, I really want to know, what is the most expensive piece of art in your house? Piece of art? Oh, when I was in Kathmandu, I bought a painting for, I think, around either $200 or $300. Wow. Um, that, yeah. that is different than I thought you were going to tell me. Uh, what You thought I was going to say like five bucks? Yes, that's exactly yeah. what I thought. <laughs> I did. Yeah, no, I, there's a the beautiful painting of uh, of the Himalayas that costs, I think, around 200 or 300 So very well worth it. Len's best artwork is probably what, Len? Dogs playing poker? <laughs> Actually, you know what we did? I commissioned a, a, a neon sign. It's in honor of the honeybee, and it's hanging in our game room. It's really cool. So, uh, yeah, it's about a thousand bucks, but it's it's awesome. Well, I find I find artwork fascinating, and uh, Scott Lynn is the CEO of a fintech company called Masterworks. They were a sponsor of our show last year for a while, and we had lots of people ask, you know, we do all these Friday fintech segments. Well, why haven't we had Masterworks on talking about just how it works and buying paintings? And, you know, we've had people talk about it. it sounds pretty risky, sounds difficult. Well, it's funny looking at some of the statistics around artwork. Scott Lynn obviously has some different ideas, so we invited him on. Let's say hi to Scott Lynn from Masterworks coming down to the basement to talk about buying art. And coming down the stairs to the basement from Masterworks, I think this guy is the most requested Friday FinTech guy we've had here in a long time. So it's about time we got him. Scott Lynn, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm glad you could make it to the basement on the Masterworks World Tour. Let's let's talk about how did Masterworks start? Because I think either you must have had a love of art from the beginning or you saw an opportunity in the marketplace where things weren't happening. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I've been collecting art for over 15 years now um, and have also been starting technology companies. And I, you know, I guess the very high-level thesis behind Masterworks is that you have this very large asset class, like Deloitte estimates the total size of, of art as an asset class is roughly $1.7 trillion, um, that historically, at least certain segments of it, have outperformed 
many other asset classes, but there's there's no way to invest in it for most people. So for the past several hundred years, <clears throat> the asset class has really just been limited to the ultra wealthy. So we're trying to take this asset class, which is outperforming and uncorrelated and make it make it accessible to anyone. It's funny when you look at art over long periods of time, the statistics around art are pretty compelling. I know on my end, just from research I've done, but I'm sure out of the two of us, your stats beat mine any day. <laughs> Tell me, make the case for art as an investment. Yeah. So if you look at, uh, there's, there's a company called Art Price, which is one of the leading research firms in the art market. And the art, art Price publishes something called the Art Price 100. And you can think of that as somewhat similar to like the S&P. So if you, if you look at the Art Price 100, which is art created by the top 100 artists in terms of transaction volume, that's outperformed the S&P uh, for the past 20 years. So it's a really compelling argument, as you said, that, that people should have some allocation of art just based on the historical performance. My problem with art back when I was a financial planner was two things. Number one, that it was expensive, obviously, for the average person to go out and buy a Andy Warhol, you know, or 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 Cezanne or whoever. And then the second thing is, is obviously it's a liquid. And I know you've kind of worked on a, a lot on the first one and probably on the second one, too, I would imagine. I'm not the first person to tell that to you. Yeah, so we're really doing two things at Masterwork. So the first thing we're doing is we're securitizing a painting so people can purchase shares in individual artworks. And we've been doing that now for a couple of years and, and we're become very good at that. The second thing that we haven't done yet, which we're very excited about, is launching a trading platform for people to trade securities in individual artworks, which really provides a, a new source of liquidity. So that's something that we, we plan to launch uh, in March. Most of our investors, that's the number one most requested feature on the platform. But still, that is, I can't imagine the work trying to bring that, to, to bring that around. Yeah, I mean, our, our lives are difficult, right? I mean, we're, we're regulated by the SEC and FINRA, so every, everything we do is, uh, is challenging. But, um, but we, we, we think we have a framework now that, that works from a regulatory perspective and kind of addresses investor, investor needs. Walk me through purchasing a painting, because looking at some of the artwork that you guys have bought here in the early years, it's been really interesting kind of following the company. But walk me through the process of how do you identify a painting you think is going to be the right one and then go in there and buy it? So we have a, uh, you know, independent of Masterworks as a platform, we have the leading research team in the art market that really analyzes lots of data on different segments of the market, individual artist markets, um, how artist markets are appreciating, depreciating, and where we think it makes sense for our investors to invest. So our research team informs our, our purchasing decisions at an individual painting level. And then once we decide which painting to purchase, we, we frankly go through a very similar process to taking a company public. So just like, um, you know, the Uber IPO, you can go to the sec.gov website, search for Masterworks and read a public offering for a painting. And similar to a company, you have risk disclosures, um, governance structure, all, all of these other things that they kind of detail out how that process works. But it's amazing. I, I mean, I would think in the beginning, you've got to keep it very quiet for a long time about a painting that you're after so that the price doesn't go up. Yeah. I mean, we, we obviously, we, we purchase the paintings of balance sheet capital. So nobody really knows about the painting we're buying until the transaction happens. And then once we buy it, we file it with the SEC to sell shares to individual investors. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. I want to talk about something that a lot of new people 
investing don't know a lot about, but you certainly do, which is correlation, right? So you've got an asset class that performs, you know, historically they talk a lot about stock and they talk about real estate as two investment classes that historically beat the pants out of inflation. But to your point from earlier, so does art. How does art correlate the ups and downs of art versus something like real estate or stocks? It's a great question. When we describe correlation investors, we tend to talk about asset classes that move in similar patterns to one another. So in today's world where you have equity markets that have rallied for a very long time, a lot of people are focused on diversification in the event that equity markets decline. And the important thing to think about there is making sure that you're investing in asset classes which are not correlated to public equities. So for example, private equity tends to be highly correlated to public equities. So if public equity markets decline, private equity would likely decline as well. Citibank did the first study on correlation between art and the S&P in 2015. And then our research team partnered with them last year in 2019 to repeat that study. And we concluded that the correlation factor is roughly 0.13. So basically, art is uncorrelated with public equities. And we think that makes it a really interesting hedge in the event that the public equities decline. There's got to be something about art that is surprising to most people. Is that the most surprising thing? Or is there usually a stat that you say for, you know, the holiday party circuit where you go, you know, art blank. Yeah. You know, so the one thing I always tell people, which even even surprises people in the art market, is that appreciation rates in art tend to follow fashion, but in very wide increments. So we, we often ask the question, you know, if you invest in a Rembrandt today, how much will that be worth in 20 years? And most people think that that investing in old masters or, or an artist like Rembrandt is, is actually a great investment decision. And what the data shows is that, that it's actually not. Meaning if you invest in an old master painting today, that will appreciate it roughly 1% to 2% a year going forward. Um, but if you invest in a contemporary artist today, an artist that you know painted after, let's say, 1970, that entire segment of the market appreciates at 10 to 11%. Wow. So that's a really good, simple takeaway for anyone thinking about investing in art. You know, appreciation rates do follow fashion, but in 40, 50, 60 year increments. Wow. I want to talk about how the fund itself works then. So people go to masterworks.io. What's waiting for them there, Scott? So, so we have individual artwork vehicles that people can pick and choose. So, so unlike a fund structure where you're just giving us money and we're deciding what to invest in, all of our investors actually choose the individual investments that they want to allocate to. So we tend to talk to people about blue chip art, which is kind of art created by the top 100 artists in terms of transaction volume or mid-career artists. And those two different buckets perform differently. So most blue chip art performs at around 10% a year with what we consider lower risk, um, whereas mid-career artists perform at anywhere between 15 and 20% a year with what we consider moderate risk. So we like for people to sort of self-identify into one of those two buckets, and then we help guide them into different artists, depending on which investment objective they have. I want to ask about fees because somebody brought up fees in our basement Facebook group about how people pay. And and it's funny because I hadn't had the opportunity to talk to you yet, but just looking through your website, you guys take care of the art. I mean, you've, the art is stored. You have some carrying costs with the art as well, which makes it different than buying an index fund. Talk about your fee structure for a moment. Sure. So our our fee structure is very similar to private equity. We earn 1.5% a year in administrative fees, then we earn 20% of the profit when the painting sells. And without stating the obvious, since a painting doesn't produce income, we actually earn those fees in equity, which aligns us with investors. And then we realize those eventually when the painting is sold. 
you want the painting to go up in value as much as possible, as much as I do. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> right? All right. Uh, tell me, well, you already told me a little bit about what's coming up next. So you guys are working on the liquidity issue. You know, Scott, nobody listens to the show. I'm sure if there's something secret, some painting you're looking at, you and I can just have a little talk about it. What's coming up next? Yeah, look, I mean, we don't announce paintings before we purchase them, but we really like artists like Basquiat. We like artists like Cecily Brown. We have 33,000 investors on the platform today. We have more than 10,000 a month signing up currently. So our, our investor um, onboarding is, is taking off very quickly. But yeah, I mean, our goal for 2020 really is to just launch more than one painting a month and continue to grow the investor base. Well, it's a longtime fan of art in that space, man. I love watching you guys. And thanks for spending a few minutes with us talking about Masterworks. God, I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. trivia nerds i'm joe's mom's neighbor duggan are you ready i mean are you really truly ready oh you'd better be because it is time for the best part of this podcast my trivia for the last few weeks we've been talking about the new decade but on this day 56 years ago Man, that seems like just yesterday. In 1963, the Beatles landed at JFK Airport in New York City to an unbelievable crowd of screaming fans. Kind of like how Joe's mom is there yelling and screaming at me when I get home. After being in the good old U.S. of A for two days, the Beatles went on to the Ed Sullivan Show. I'm not sure who that guy was, though, but I guess he was kind of like the first version of The Voice. Maybe? I don't know. Probably a good analogy. So here's your question. How much money did the Beatles receive for that Ed Sullivan show appearance? I'll be back with an answer right after I figure out if a thumb counts as a finger. That will probably take him all day. So we've got some time. Don, backstage, we brought you the complex rules to this game. You think you got the rules down? Hands down. <laughs> it's, it's, they're so <laughs> convoluted. The closest guess and the score, because we keep track all year long. And by the way, uh, Karen, our producer, let me know that last week we got the score wrong. All re- we are three weeks in, Len, and we already got the score wrong at that point. Yeah, well, why I'm color me not surprised. (laughs) This super competition, we can't even count to three. But the score is, and Paula, I apologize because this is not in your favor. It is Len two, OG now has two, and Paula has zero, which means, Paula, you get to decide first. Are you going to guess first in the middle or last? I will guess last, Joe. That is very strange. Don, silver lining. Yes. Don, would you like to go in the middle or first? Well, obviously the middle. Cha, absolutely. (laughs) Which means, Mr. Penzo, you get to guess first. Uh, So the Beatles on this Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, this is a really cool question. I have no idea, but I'm going to say, isn't that like a union scale, right? Don't they have like something called union scale for, for people who show up on a show? And I think today I've heard that the union scale for if you're making an appearance, a short appearance on a show, it's like $750 or $800 today. So now if that's true, it'd be significantly cheaper back in 1963. I bet people are just going to be gobsmacked, but I'm going to say $200. The Beatles got paid 200 bucks to go on Ed Sullivan. (laughs) 
All right, Don, what are you thinking? Hmm. Well, my first thought was, well, first of all, it's the Beatles. So there's part of me that says they got paid. There's a part of me that says they didn't get paid because they're, you know, it's promotion for them. Ed Sullivan. Oh gosh. I don't know. I, but they are the Beatles. They were, in fact, just literally two days ago, I bought my 16 year old, a Beatles shirt. I mean, that's how Yeah. it was $40. So I think they probably made more than that. I, I paid $40 for a Beatles shirt two days ago. So let let me just guess. Let me say $5,000. Well, Paula, that, <laughs> you got to pick one of those two, Don. I don't know if I explained the rule correctly. Okay, 5000 5000 5000 bucks. Well, Paula, that gives you a pretty big moat between the two of those. Numbers. $200 or 5000 Well, And the rule is closest, right? The Whoever ru- guessed is closest. My first thought when I heard the question is that my assumption is that performers wouldn't get paid because it's promotion, it's marketing. You know, you do a stint on a major television show, especially back then when there were only like three TV channels anyway. Um, So just what Don... country's going to watch it. Yeah, just what Don was talking about. Just the promotional ass... They're going to get paid a ton of money in other ways. Exactly. Yeah, you know, once they're on that show, they're going to sell out more concert tickets. They're going to sell out more cassette tapes or whatever people listen to back then. Oh, oh Um, Lord, Paula. Oh, that was so bad. (laughs) So I view that as marketing. You know, it's not a concert where you're selling tickets to a paying crowd. And people who come in to watch those shows, at least Stephen Colbert and modern shows, the live audience, they don't pay anything to see the shows. So I'm going to guess zero. So you think it's uh, at the very least less than a hundred bucks then? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going for zero. Well, you know what, guys? We're going to do what any self-respecting show does. We're going to make you wait for the answer. We'll be right back. It's that time of year. We are gathering up all of our tax documents, and soon it's going to be time to file your taxes. And that's why we're excited that we've partnered this tax season with Free Tax USA. Founded in 2001 by a CPA and a team of professional software developers, FreeTax USA is one of the fastest growing tax websites online today. Over 43 million free federal tax returns have been filed with the IRS. It's amazing how many five-star reviews they've had, over 175,000 people. And definitely when you go to the uh, Stacking Benjamins Facebook group, which you can reach easily by going to stackybedjamins.com forward slash basement, you will find people talking about it in incredibly glowing terms. If you've used Free Tax USA, you really, really like Free Tax USA. Of course, your maximum refund is guaranteed at Free Tax USA. They have different services. They have the basic premium and self-employed features. Federal filing is free even if you have 1099 income, rental income, small business income, Other services you may know charge over $100 to file advanced tax returns. Common life events like having a child, going to school, and buying and selling a house, those are covered without the need to upgrade. So your question might be, hey, Joe, they call it Free Tax USA. How do they make money? Well, they make money from state tax returns and other optional services. Filing your federal and state taxes together saves time and improves accuracy. And for less than $15, 
It's an excellent value. Customer service, of course, is free and accessible through their customer support or email. And there's no risk to try freetaxusa.com. You don't pay anything until you're ready to file your return, create an account, and compare the results and price with your current tax software. And by the way, those are easy to import. You can import a PDF from TurboTax, H&R Block, or Tax Act. So to learn more and to get 10% off, head to freetaxusa.com forward slash SB. Use code SB to learn more and get 10% off. Head to freetaxusa.com forward slash SB and use code SB. Welcome back, Trivia Nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm carrying in my hot little hand the answer to my awesome trivia. The question was this, how much money did the Beatles receive for their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1963? Well, if you said zero, yeah, you'd be way off. I mean, they had to get something and not just a set of steak knives either. I mean, if someone offered them zero, they wouldn't let it be. They'd say, please, please me, wouldn't they? Nah, they'd say, hey, Jude, don't let me down. Don't even think for a second I can't do this all day. I'll take that bet. They'd go to Ed Sullivan and say, we can work it out, wouldn't they? If they were offered zero, they wouldn't just cry. Their guitar would gently weep. Well, we'll let this be before there's a revolution. So if you said the Beatles received a whopping $10,000, you'd be right. So let me see here. Uh, uh, um, uh, if I use this calculator thingamabob, uh, right, that would be like getting about $82,000 in today's money. $82,000. That'd help them all work it out. Maybe that kind of money. Let them buy some love. Because who said you can't buy me love? Not old Doug. Oh, no, you can buy me love. Okay, now back to the long and winding road of this podcast for you. Oh! oh. Don Dolby, you're the winner. Woo! I wonder about if they uh, had to deal with the tax man. (laughs) (laughs) That's why they only received 5,000, not 10. So I was right. (laughs) There it is. 50% 50% right off the top. Yeah, and didn't doesn't England, didn't they have like a 98% tax on, uh, you know, back then? That's so 98%, then they're down, that's $200. <laughs> then I'm right on the money. Oh, man. Well, oh. and I think we've all heard why it couldn't be zero. <laughs> Actually, I really thought it would be zero. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, with you. I think zero. I, I do wonder if they get paid something today. Yeah. I'm very curious. I don't, I don't know. know. Every time I see somebody on one of those late night shows, I always assume that they're not making anything, but I guess who knows? Maybe modern artists are too. Hey, Paula, the next time I'm on uh, your show or uh, Don, the next time you do a summit, I'm have my agent talk to you first <laughs> based on this thing. We got some talk. Yeah, we got some talking to do. Hey guys, let's help somebody magnify their money. Let's take out the magnifying glass because today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. Don, you know what happens when you go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money? What happens? You you find out that those financial products you walk into the bank and use every day, they're nowhere near best in class. Over 92% of all the financial products available, checking accounts, savings accounts, consolidation loans, the different credit card offers, student loans, 
Over 92% of the products available online all ranked at Magnify Money. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money for more. We're mixing it up today, guys, because what we did, we went to Instagram where we got a great question from our friend Levi. And uh, I thought this was a great question because we've got Dawn here with us. So I thought this would be interesting question to ask her, but we'll also ask Paula and Len. Levi asks, should we take risks while we're still in debt? Mm. And when he talks about taking risk, I'm sure he's talking about risks with his portfolio, I would guess. So, um, Len, you want to go first on that one? What do you think? If you're still in debt, should you take risk with your money? Uh, that's uh that's a good question. I mean, how much debt do you have? I mean, I mean, you could have just a little bit of debt, but I assume that means you have a negative net worth. Uh, you know, so uh, if you have a negative net worth, can should you take risks? Oh my gosh, uh, that's a toughie. I don't know. No, I think you should probably work off paying your debt. Get rid of your debt. But that doesn't mean not contribute to your retirement account. I still think you should uh, contribute at least to the amount that your employer is matching. But I still think you should strive to at least get down, get your debt down, especially your credit card debt at least, your bad debt eliminated. You're usually a – when we've had discussions about debt in the past though, Len, I think you're a – Usually pay off your mortgage slowly kind of guy. I Good debt, yes. Good debt, yes. That's why I said bad debt in my response. So if you have credit card debt, I think by all means you need to get rid of that, that kind of debt. If you have good debt, no, yeah, you can hold on to that, of course. With the tax law change now that a lot of people can't itemize, they could before, so the mortgage is no longer deductible. Did that change your opinion at all, Len? Um, well, you know what? I owe so little on my home that it didn't really make a difference to me. But, uh, you know, maybe it had been different if I had a humongous mortgage and I had a humongous or a tax interest payment that was enough to throw me over the edge. So, gotcha. So it's a cash flow question then. Yeah. 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 Uh, Paula? So I say yes, you should still take investment risks when you are in debt as long as those risks are commensurate with the timeline of what you are investing for. So, for example, if you are in debt, but you also have a 401k or a 403b or an IRA, like those are retirement funds. And you can take risks with those retirement funds that are appropriate to your timeline to retirement because you're not going to be touching that money prior to retirement anyway. And similarly, if you have some other pool of investments that is earmarked for some sort of a long-term purpose – Maybe you've got some money in a taxable brokerage account. Maybe you've got money in a donor advised fund or something. Um, You can invest that in a way that's appropriate to the time in which you plan on harnessing that money. So as long as each bucket of money has risks that are associated with its timeline, then I think the question of whether or not you're in debt wouldn't really apply because you're not going to be using that money to pay off your debt. Don, I want the CFP to go last, and then I'm going to flip this question a little bit and come to you first again uh, with, with another question. But what do you think? I would echo Paula's comments and say this. So if you're investing for a longer period goal, which would potentially be retirement, anything that's longer than five or seven years, go ahead and take on the risk. But if you're taking, if you're asking about taking on risk for short-term goals, like taking on risk to gain more 
money to, to pay off the, let's say the bad debt, then hell no. Like that would be horrible. You, the only time you can take on risk is if it's for a longer period of time that your goal is paying off debt should be a faster goal. So I would say no, if it's short term, gotcha. okay? so short term, I would say no. The other thing I'd like to say is that when I talk about debt, I always want to peel back. Why are we in debt? Like what's the behavior again? Why do we have the debt? Is it because you're a young student and you needed to put new tires on your car and you just don't have a job yet? You know, that's a different type of credit card debt than I emotionally spend money too much and I shop too much or I gamble or whatever that is. So I would get to the real reason of why the debt is there and then also look at the risk associated with the reason why the debt is there. So if you're really risky and you spend too much money, then take that same behavior on that risk and go apply it to apply it to getting a better job with better income so you don't have that debt. Well, yeah, and I think about that while you're talking, you know, getting to the root of the problem. I like that because we were I was having a discussion with somebody recently about consolidation loans and about how consolidation loans can be great, but if you don't fix the behavior, now you're going to have a new consolidation loan and you're going to max out your credit cards again. Yeah, I've done that with clients. You know, I've literally in the beginning of my career would make people cut up their credit cards once they paid them off. And guess what? When I when I was new in the business and didn't talk about the behavior, guess what? The same stuff would happen. They would have they they would have credit card debt again or they wouldn't have the credit cards, but then they would go buy a, a car that was too expensive or what have you and it's like it's like it never works. You know, just the tactics of managing debt and managing money don't work unless you put in the the full picture on the why and the behavior of what's going on. I want to flip this the other way now because at the time we got this, this was around the time that we had Rashawn Leon. She and her husband, Rob, they have a just a fantastic uh, YouTube channel called Learn, Hustle, Grow. But something that they did was they took some risk with their income stream while they were in debt and where their income was coming from. So somebody might have a lot of debt done and they have a decent job, but they don't want to be in that job anymore. Would you say keep the job till you get the debt to a manageable level or, or, or take the risk with your income stream? Ooh, that's, that's a tough question. I, you know, again, it's about behavior and what has happened. I always like to look at history to gauge how the, you know, how they're going to perform and what type of income they're going to have in the future, because history tends to repeat itself in just different ways. But personally, I would say the debt would have to be paid down to a certain level before they would take on the risk of having new income. Because sometimes that that risk, maybe becoming an entrepreneur, that income is not guaranteed. And it's never guaranteed, even in a short period of time. It takes an entrepreneur a long time to create income to support lifestyles, let alone to pay off debt. So I would say there'd have to be some type of minimal threshold. Paula, to be do you, Paula, do you agree with all that massive podcast money you and I are making? Oh yeah, man. $12 and 42 cents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you think? Yeah. No, I say don't take risks with your income unless you have paid off all of your high interest debt. So by high interest debt, I mean anything that has a double digit interest rate. Um, make sure that that's gone. And if you've got a credit card balance that maybe it has a 
a temporary low 0% teaser rate, get rid of that. So get rid of your credit card debt, get rid of anything else that has a double digit rate. And only under those two circumstances would I say, take risks with your income. Len, anything to add there? No, I, I wouldn't take any risks with my income when I'm deep in debt like that. <laughs> Do you know what's funny? <laughs> I I didn't come to you first because I knew your answer immediately. I was like, I don't Mr. Risk-free. Yeah, that's that's me. <laughs> Len's like, oh, hell no. Hell no. But yeah. you know what they could do literally with the debt there? I mean, keep your full-time job, get the, the secondary income, pay off the debt. And then leave your job. Like, yeah, hello, the, that's the best way that they should handle that. Yeah, bootstrap it and do it part-time, side hustle. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Thanks for the question, by the way, Levi. If you've got a question for us, uh, uh, you can definitely hang out with us over on Instagram, the Stacky Benjamins podcast on Instagram there. But you can leave us also a voicemail, stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And uh, we can answer your question on the Magnify Money line. That's going to do it for today. I think we'll ask our special guest what she's up to last. So, uh, Len, what's happening at the persistentitch.com? You know what's funny? There are probably people that are new enough to this show. They have no idea what the hell that joke's about anymore. <laughs> what's going on? That joke's at, as old as us. That joke is so old. It's <laughs> just so bad. Like, what the hell are they talking about? Uh, what's going on at lenpenzo.com? Uh, let's see. I go back into, uh, my days as a grocery clerk and I share some, uh, secrets that, uh, grocers don't want you to know how they jack up prices secretly and get you to trick you into buying things for higher prices. Yeah. Len just hangs out by the dumpster out behind the store, <laughs> gets that huge discount. It's only, you know, what's sad is people used to do, even when I say, I mean, even when I was a, a box boy, I remember people doing that. They would hang out at, at the dumpster because we would throw out perfectly good bread, perfectly good. It was one day past the the uh, date, and we'd throw it in the trash, and yeah. and you know people would yeah. people would take it. Yeah, <laughs> Paula, what's happening at uh, affordanything.com? On the crazy Afford Anything podcast, this dude named Joe Salcihi joins me to answer questions that come in from. Our community. Shut the so, front door. Uh, I know, right? You and I have a great time. We've also got Jeff Chrysler who talks about behavioral finance, how we mess ourselves up when it comes to the ways in which we think about money. And David Stein who talks about 10 questions that you should ask yourself before making any investment. All at the Afford Anything podcast. Last week, we had our meetup in New York City. And I'll say mm -hmm. for the 53rd time, everybody that came, that was so fun. We had such a blast. But I have to say, Paula, people kept coming up to me and saying, it got so tense on Paula's podcast when you guys were fighting about mutual funds. Like, <laughs> like they thought that you and I were about to strangle each other. And I said, <laughs> no, it's just good radio. But she's also completely wrong. <laughs> you know what? Somebody sent me a text message about that just last week. That's so I mean, and that episode aired a while ago and I'm still getting texts about it. My phone's still blowing up. It, it, it was amazing how many people talked about that at the meetup. And I'll just say, Paula, you're still wrong. So there you go. <laughs> Don, thanks. Well, solve that. I can be asked what you were arguing about and I'll solve it. Oh for you. my goodness. No, oh, you don't even want to go, go down. The, it was, uh, well, well, we'll do it another time, Don. <laughs> I'd have to side with Paula. She's a female, right? Yes. She's right. Yes. I don't want people to see that you're already ganging up on me. 
uh, there it is. Don, thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. It was super fun. It was, you guys know how to laugh and joke and have a good time, which oh, is great. Well, when you and I finally met, which is funny being at the same company for as long as we were and doing a lot of the same stuff and knowing a lot of the same people, it was funny. It was like a kindred spirit. So I'm glad that you could uh, come join us and you got to come back. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much. Well, tell us what's going on with you. How can people find you and uh, what's uh, coming up? Yeah, well, we you can find us at relevefinancialgroup.com. Um, you know, it is an election year. It's going to be a bumpy year, I think. So there's going to be lots of handholding um, with clients. So I'm assuming there's going to be lots of meetings this year. And another thing that we're really focusing on right now is, you know, uh, once again, there's tax law change. For 2020, there's a number of new things, even with required minimum minimum distributions, et cetera. So we are going out. I think I have scheduled, I think, nine different workshops this year on modern retirement and how how we talked about modern retirement today and taking little retirements throughout life. And educating our audiences around, you know, the new tax laws and how that can how it's impacting them and how they can, you know, create strategies so they can pay less in taxes. That is awesome. And you're right. I think it is going to be a crazy year, not not necessarily for the market, but for people emotionally, no matter where they're at on the spectrum. And so it's going to come down to behavior this year. Behavior, I think, will be all over the map. Um, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, if you're walking your dog around your commute, we'll have all the links to not just Dawn's practice, but also to the persistent itch with Len (laughs) and to that crazy afford anything podcast. All right, Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, as your professional announcer guy hated by most, I will certainly provide that service. First, we learned from Don Dalby and the crew that retirement isn't about the money only. It's about flexibility. Find ways to do more of what you want instead of locking yourself into a future that might not meet your needs. Second, we learned from Scott Lynn, the founder of Masterworks, that you really can invest in the fine arts. And while volatile, it can also be profitable. But the big lesson? Always wave to your neighbor with all your fingers. Be the person who's warm and friendly instead of waving the one-finger salute perfected by Joe. Special thanks to Dawn Dalby from Releve Financial Group. You can find all her information at dawndalby.com. We also want to thank Scott Lynn for stopping down to the basement to discuss Masterworks. You'll find more at masterworks.io forward slash SB. Paula Pant appears courtesy of affordanything.com and the Afford Anything podcast. Len Penzo appears courtesy of lenpenzo.com and thepersistentitch.com. This show is created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. What do you suppose they call that? A novelty act? I don't know, but it wasn't too bad. Well, that's a novelty. Glenn, did you hide your dog? Huh? Did you hide your dog? I see a dog bed behind you. Uh, he's downstairs because if, if he was up here, he'd be clickety-clacketing with his nails. And yes, he's downstairs. <laughs> All I'm, 120 pounds of him. Oh, Len, really? doesn't, Len yeah. doesn't have a dog. That's where the honeybee makes him sleep when he's <laughs> been yeah, bad. That's my couch. That's, that's my couch when I've been bad. <laughs> Don't you just love it when somebody sends you an email and then they try to recall it? It's like, that's the kiss of death. I mean, everybody reads it. They take special pains to read a recalled email. You'd be better off hoping they just ignore it. That's actually a funny story. Back when I was at American Express, you'll appreciate this, Don. The office manager and the chief administrator that ran the office were having an affair and uh, just keeping it on the down low. And Anne sent Tony an email saying, hey, where are we going to dinner tonight? And then they retracted it. What's funny was, and everybody in the office said this, there was like 40 people, it's a big office. Nobody would have thought anything because they probably went to dinner all the time to talk strategy or whatever. Like nobody thought anything until she recalled it. And once she recalled it, everybody's (laughs) like, oh my God. Yeah. And now they've been happily married for 20 years. And wow. uh, yeah, but anyway, at the time it was completely on the down low. And d- Len, to your point, it was the recalled email. Yep, exactly. Yep. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother in law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. 
Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.